Welcome to our podcast, Heart Failure Morning Commute, managing patients with mid-range or preserved ejection fraction. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by independent educational grants from Boeinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Eli Lilly and Company, and from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. In this episode, Dr. Deepak Bhatt and Dr. Javed Butler take a look at current guidelines for managing patients with heart failure, the sometimes confusing heart failure labels, as well as foundational therapies. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heartfailure2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Bott is Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Programs, Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center, and a Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Boston. Dr. Butler is Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Mississippi, Jackson. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Bott will begin our discussion. Welcome to our second podcast. Javed, welcome back. It's great to have you again. So let's take a closer look at the patient who is diagnosed with heart failure and the current guidelines on how to manage them. So maybe, Javed, a good place to start is with guidelines. Uh, And I guess since we're in the U.S., we can start off with the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association guidelines, although those haven't been updated uh, as of the time, at least of our discussion, to reflect the absolute latest clinical findings, although there are new guidelines uh, that have come out of, say, Europe, the European uh, Society of Cardiology released their heart failure guidelines this past summer. And I must say, I thought those were really quite good. So um, any thoughts about the guidelines? Yeah, I mean, you know, guidelines are sort of really uh, important. Our our erudite colleagues, a lot of them put a lot of thoughts into into them. And the last set of full uh, guidelines from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, and Heart Failure Society of America uh, was almost like nine years ago. They have uh, been a couple of focused updates. So we are really all sort of awaiting uh, the guidelines uh, and see what they say. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, you know, European guidelines recently came out, Canadian, Japanese guidelines came out. So we have a little bit of a sense of which direction our uh, uh, international colleagues are thinking about guidelines. Uh, but there's a lot of data that has come out that uh, we can at least opine on what the ACCHA, uh, HFSA guidelines might say. Uh, but we just don't know yet. Yeah, I think that is a good. It, it's hard to speculate what will be in the guidelines. Uh, as far as the U.S. guidelines, um, it's, it's actually a pretty long hiatus for the guidelines. But uh, the European guidelines, I, I thought, were terrific. And just because it says Europe and it doesn't mean that we can't use them in the U.S. Again, I, I thought they were very thoughtful, very evidence-based, uh, very nice color coding. So for anyone in the audience that really wants to come up to speed quickly on what's newest in heart failure, I would say look at those European Society of Cardiology heart failure guidelines. Anything from those guidelines that you thought was particularly interesting or would like to highlight, John? Yeah, many things, you know. So uh, obviously there was a lot uh, written about heart failure with reduced ejection fractions, so we'll we'll keep that for for a later time. Uh, But focusing on uh, heart failure with mid-range and preserved ejection fraction, uh, there was a, a, a big, big change because if you look at the classic guidelines, both in uh, US and in Europe, 
for management of patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, it was basically uh, the, the, the top line was that there are no therapies that have been shown to improve outcomes. So basically, it was symptomatic management with uh, uh, diuretics and uh, congestion. So the guidelines uh, in US and in Europe basically uh, was focused on symptomatic improvement, giving diuretics for congestion, uh, and uh, for the patients to have their comorbidities managed, whether it's cardiovascular comorbidities like atrial fibrillation or ischemia or, or non-cardiovascular comorbidities, uh, diabetes or chronic kidney disease. So, so that was the focus. Now, what's interesting is that uh, we have a lot of data from clinical trials, the past clinical trials, that did not meet their overall primary endpoint. But if you look at the subgroup analyses of those trials, it turns out that this group of mildly reduced or mid-range ejection fraction or heart failure with uh, uh, MREF, uh, if you may, uh, those patients actually act very much like heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So there are, there are uh, meta-analyses with beta blockers that that group benefits. Uh, CHARM trial, that group's benefit. Uh, uh, we saw that with the TopCat and MRAs. So there's a lot of data. So actually the guidelines now specifically give a class two recommendation for the same therapy that we give for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction to patients with heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction as well. So all the way up to 50. Now, why do we give a class two recommendation and not a class one recommendation? Uh, so for our colleagues who don't, don't live and breathe guidelines all the time, you know, class one recommendation is a good idea, do it. Class three recommendation is a bad idea, don't do it. And class two is sort of a strong suggestion, but, but not to the same level as class one. And the reason is that these recommendations are based on subgroup analyses of other trials, as opposed to the HEFREF trials, which were just focused and powered uh, uh, entirely for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So I think the biggest thing that they have done uh, is to give the same recommendation. Having said that, uh, the first trial ever to be positive in patients with HEF-PEF uh, uh, was actually presented the day when these guidelines uh, came out. Uh, so those were not uh, those data did not inform these guidelines so we can sort of have our own opinion about which way things should go. Great. So uh, before getting to some of the newer data and the newer therapies, maybe we can uh, discuss some of the older therapies uh, such as ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, beta blockers, uh, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, really the foundation of treatment uh, for heart failure, certainly heart failure with uh, reduced ejection fraction, but as you said, also those with a mildly reduced ejection fraction. Uh, any thoughts about those data sets, which now are largely older data sets? Yeah, so the CHARM trial, uh, uh, regardless of the EF, actually did meet the hospitalization reduction uh, uh, endpoint. It was not the primary endpoint, but basis, on the basis of that, there was already a class two recommendation, even in the previous set of guidelines, uh, uh, with uh, with candesartan, so with with ARB you have that benefit. Uh, there's a meta-analysis of all the studies, uh, both observational and uh, randomized, to look at beta blockers at the higher end of ejection fraction. Uh, they show benefit, uh, and then the MRA trial again, lots of controversy for the TopCat trial uh, with uh, patients uh, that were enrolled outside of North America. 
uh, may not have actually heart failure or may not have received the, the drug. But if you exclude those patients and focus on the two-thirds of the patient enrolled in, in, in the North Americas, uh, there was a substantial benefit in that group as well. Now, the good thing is that there are three other trials going on with MRAs and HEFPEF. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to the truth. But I think for the time being, uh, the classic medication, candesartan, uh, beta blockers, and MRA, all of them have shown benefit. Then you have the valsartan secubitril, uh, Paradigm HF, big, big uh, benefit in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. But there was a trial done uh, called Paragon in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And it turns out that uh, the median ejection fraction in, this, in that trial was 57. And those people that had uh, less than median ejection fraction, so a little bit more than what we are calling mildly reduced EF, so say 40 to 55%, uh, they also had a significant benefit, but the higher EF patients did not benefit. So I think at this point, either an RNE or R beta blocker and MRA is pretty much the standard of care for patients with EF of less than 50%. Uh, and I think that we should include definitely SGLT2 inhibitors in that category as well. The reason why they are not in the European guidelines is because those data were not available when the guidelines were being written. Yeah, that's a really important point um, because there are data now for SGLT2 inhibitors in these sorts of patients. And uh, at least at the time we're, we're speaking, um, that's not a labeled indication, but I uh, imagine that it will be sometime, you know, in the next several months or so. Uh, so the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, I think many uh, people in our audience might still think of them as diabetes drugs, but in fact, well, they're great diabetes drugs, but they're also drugs for heart failure, as it turns out. Uh, we'll get into that class of drugs a bit more uh, later on, but what about GLP-1 receptor agonists, which are diabetes drugs for sure? Uh, do they have any role in these patients that we're talking about with heart failure, with preserved ejection fraction or mildly reduced ejection fraction? Yeah, so with GLP-1 receptor agonist, life is a little bit more complicated than, than SGLT2 inhibitors, where there is a consistent signal of benefit and prevention of heart failure and treatment of heart failure. Uh, with GLP-1 receptor agonist, uh, if you look at meta-analyses of all the type 2 diabetes trial with GLP-1 receptor agonist, uh, there's a softer signal uh, that actually does reach statistical significance, but about a 9% reduction uh, of new onset heart failure. So as opposed to SGLT2 inhibitors, which is about a 30% relative risk reduction, uh, but that's in type 2 diabetes. But what about the use in those who already have manifest heart failure? Uh, so I am very, very optimistic about the use of GLP-1 receptor agonist in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And if I were a betting man, I would say that they will then for benefit uh, because of their significant effect on adiposity. And adiposity has such an incremental role, such a, such a sort of important role in development and progression of uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And, and adipose tissue is pretty much a, a factory for inflammation and oxidative stress that it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so there are three trials ongoing in HEFPEF. I don't have any data. They are going on uh, both in patients with and without diabetes who have HEFPEF. So we have to wait. Now, HEFREF is a little bit more of a tricky issue uh, because GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with some increase in uh, cyclic AMP levels intracellularly, a little bit increase in heart rate. And these things classically in HEFREF have not been uh, beneficial for the patient. And in fact, there is some harm associated with that. There are two small studies that have been done with GLP-1 receptor agonist and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, uh, uh, the FIGHT trial and the LIFE trial. Both of them 
you know, woefully small to make any confirmatory uh, uh, decisions whether these drugs are uh, safe or unsafe or, or whether there is any benefit. But nevertheless, in both those trials, uh, the directionality for the primary endpoint cardiovascular, not the primary endpoint, but the, the clinical endpoint of cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization was actually going in the wrong direction. Uh, so with that biology of CAMP heart rate, with the, the, these two trials showing the data going in the wrong direction, my bias would be that if you have somebody with HEF-PEF and uh, you're giving GLP-1 receptor agonists for type 2 diabetes, Sure, go ahead, and you're likely going to benefit half-pef, but I don't know. We'll get the data for half-pef soon enough. If you're giving it to a non-heart failure patient, sure, you can expect some benefit for heart failure prevention. Uh, but if you truly have half-ref, uh, today I would probably try other drugs, uh, and, and let's look at some large observational studies to see what's going on there. I think that's really a great summary of a lot of data with respect to GLP-1 receptor agonists. I mean, these are terrific diabetes drugs. And uh, for that matter, they also appear to be great obesity drugs in the number of trials and great areas you mentioned and in obesity as well are, are, are just really a number of high quality, well-powered trials. So we're really going to earn the answer. I certainly think in patients that are very overweight uh, and have HEF-PEF, a, a proportion of that is due to their um, obese state and a GLP-1 receptor agonist there, I would imagine, could have particularly um, large benefits. So I, I really, much like you, I'm, I'm equally uh, awaiting the ongoing trials. So uh, perhaps now we can move a little bit from data to talk about heart failure labels. It sometimes is a confusing topic, what is labeled for what. Uh, I think physicians are sort of aware of labels, but maybe don't always know what um, uh, labels are. Do you have any thoughts about that and how that should impact the care of patients with heart failure? In, in particular, again, we're talking in this segment about heart failure with uh, mildly reduced or mid-range or preserved ejection fraction. Yeah, so you know, there's a little bit of a tension to be very uh, evidence-based, but that evidence base is uh, based a little bit on, on historical construct and not necessarily sort of biologic construct. Uh, so I can give you my opinion, but I want to be sort of explicitly transparent that this is my opinion and, and not necessarily that everybody will agree with it, or, or perhaps maybe the guidelines are not going to say that. But, but if you truly look at what the, what the labels are right now, uh, then 40% or less is, is uh, uh, HEFREF, 41 to 49 is heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, and 50 plus is heart failure with, uh, with preserved ejection fraction. Uh, and then if you used to have EF less than 40%, uh, uh, but now it has improved, uh, then it's heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Uh, and if you're, you know, if you're sort of completely recovered, there is a sense that if you stop the medication, things tend to get worse. Uh, so it's labeled as heart failure uh, in remission, uh, if you may, sort of taking the analogy from, from the cancer uh, world. Uh, so, so that's what the, uh, the, the classification is. The problem that I have is that one, sometimes it becomes a little bit too difficult to digest in the primary care setting. Our colleagues who are not only worried about cardiovascular diseases, but are treating a lot of different diseases 
Uh, that, that's one. And then two, our, our therapies don't line up exactly with these definitions, right? So we talked about valsartan sacubitril showing benefit all the way up to EF 57%, for instance. Uh, and then, you know, same thing with, uh, with the top dead trial and MRAs as well. Uh, so, so, so maybe we can have these, these nuanced erudite classifications for scientific purposes in the background, but in the front for the patients, uh, I, I would think that, that it's probably pretty reasonable to dichotomize it at 55%. And if you're less than 55%, just treat it like half ref and give all the four drugs. And if it's more than 55% today, give SGLT2 inhibitors and diuretics and, and let's see what the other data show. Yeah, I, I just really agree with 100% of what you said and, and have nothing more to add there. You know, a term that's used in some circles, at least uh, increasingly in, in cardiology and in heart failure cardiology, uh, is the term foundational therapy or foundational therapies. Um, do you want to talk to the audience a bit about what is meant by foundational therapies in the context of heart failure? You sort of yeah. alluded to it by not calling it that, but, but what is meant when someone says, foundational therapies. This patient should be on foundational therapies. What exactly is the foundation? Yeah, so the, the term that we uh, used to use, and, and we still use them, is called GDMT, or guideline-drive medical therapy, except that the guideline-drive medical therapy is very nuanced and has layers to it. So there are certain therapies you give to sort of all the patients in the absence of intolerance or contraindication. And then based on the response to those therapies, uh, then you give you know, some specific therapies to one group of patients, say perhaps whose heart rate is persistently high, other therapies who have some specific abnormalities like say iron uh, deficiency and all that kind of stuff. So, so there are sort of layers to the guideline drive medical therapy, but foundational therapy are those therapies that are at the bottom, at the base, as the, as, as the, uh, the, the term applies, it's a foundation. So all patients should get these therapies uh, unless and until there's a contraindication or, or uh, if you're intolerant. Uh, so the foundational therapy, the term is primarily used in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with the four drugs, uh, RAS inhibitor, beta blocker, MRA, and SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, but I can bet you that we are evolving at a point that we will be using this foundational therapy concept in higher ejection fraction related heart failure as well. I think that's a great explanation. And in terms of the foundational therapies, I think historically it's sort of been start one, see how the patient does, maybe titrate up the dose at the next visit and add number two, see how the patient does, you know, and, and, and so on. So that by the time you get to the full foundation, you know, maybe the house has collapsed. That is, you know, it, it just takes a long time. Uh, what's uh, the latest thinking and your particular thinking about the sequencing, which comes first, how quickly should it be done? Yeah. So there's a there's a lot lot hidden here, and and, and I'm sure in, in one of the subsequent podcasts we'll we'll, we'll really dig deep into that. Uh, but 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 the high level sort of uh, concept here is that that we only have so much uh, 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 money to spend, right? So you cannot sort of spend full on on uh, everything. So so what do you do? So so your spending function of your creatinine and blood pressure and, and heart rate is only so much. So the the general sense is to not give one therapy at such high doses 
still indicated doses, but higher doses that you run out of your blood pressure or creatinine or potassium or something like that, that you cannot give the other therapy. So the idea right now is a little bit against this concept of sequencing and give this drug first and that drug later, but actually match it to the person sitting in front of you, depending on their dizziness or blood pressure or, or, or what, you know, heart rate or atrial fibrillation or creatinine. Uh, and, and whichever drug you start first is fine. Just don't take too long and just put them on all the four drugs in the next three, four weeks as soon as possible as you can. Yeah, that's really great advice. Well, you know, it, it's been a fascinating conversation with you. We've covered a lot of different ground about heart failure with mildly reduced sometimes. It used to be called mid-range uh, and then also a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but also touching upon heart failure with reduced ejection fraction because there is some commonality in terms of at least some of the drugs that are used. So just uh, for audience then, I want to alert you to our next podcast. And there we'll be discussing heart failure in the patient with type two diabetes and other cardiovascular risk factors. Even in this segment, we touched upon some drugs such as SGLT2 inhibitors that are drugs for diabetes. But separate from that, there are also drugs for heart failure. And of course, in someone that has both diabetes and heart failure, they're particularly apt drugs to use. But we also touched upon GLP-1 receptor agonists, and there it's not so clear that they have a role in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but they do seem promising in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, in particular in patients who got obesity with a number of trials that are ongoing with that particular class of medicine. So we'll discuss this and more in our next podcast. So please make sure to tune in for that one. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash heart failure too. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.